Welcome to the Hopkins Press Podcast. I'm Mary Alice Yeske with the Hopkins Press Journals Division. I'm delighted to introduce our guest today, Dr. Wendy Doniger. Dr. Doniger is the Mircha Eliada Distinguished Service Professor of the History of Religions at the University of Chicago Emerita. She is the author of over 40 books, including The Hindus and Alternative History and Hinduism in the Norton Anthology of World Religions. Dr. Doniger recently contributed to the journal Social Research's Books That Matter issue, which asked notable scholars to reflect on a book that deeply affected their lives. Dr. Doniger's essay, My Life in Wonderland, describes the many ways that the works of Lewis Carroll have brought her joy and inspiration over the course of her career and life. Thank you so much for joining us today, Wendy. I so appreciate your time. The first thing we like to ask all our guests is if you could give us your academic origin story, what led you to study Indology? It began when I was really quite young. My mother um, gave me a passage to India, E.M. Foster. And then she gave me rumor gardens, translations of stories. And so I was interested in India. And then when I started high school, I learned Latin and my Latin teacher privately taught me a bit of Greek and I like Greek better than Latin because it had a funny script and was harder and she said if you like that you'd love Sanskrit I said what is Sanskrit oh. it's the language of India which I already so it came together more and more mm -hmm. and at the same time I came from a very political family this was the 50s a lot was going on McCarthy my mother was a communist lots was going on and I got tired of it and I wanted to go long ago and far away and Sanskrit seemed to be the place. So I began at Radcliffe. I chose Radcliffe because it was the only place at that time that a woman could learn Sanskrit in college. It was basically women's Harvard. Mm. I began as a 17 year old freshman at Radcliffe studying Sanskrit. And um, it was a good guess, it was a guess of course. What do you know when you're 17? But it was a good <laughs> guess and I never regretted it. I loved having private tutorials with the Sanskrit professor when all my colleagues at Radcliffe were in 500 person classes with Harvard boys studying English literature and so forth. So mm -hmm. it suited me and it, I, I loved everything about India. I loved its excesses. I loved the, the way that you could wear purple and orange together when everyone else was just sort of wearing brown or basic <laughs> black. And I loved the Indian painting where you got lots and lots of things into it instead of just one portrait in a landscape, which I thought was boring. Mm. Didn't like Renaissance art at all. Uh, it just suited my, my tastes. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I never looked back. It was a guess, it was only a guess, but it was, a, it was an educated guess and um, it was right. It was really, oh. right. I was lucky. I was very- That's a rare lucky. gift, yeah. Yeah. Wonderful, thank you. The latest issue of the journal Social Research is a special issue. The title is Books That Matter Too, uh, because it's the second time that the journal has invited authors to reflect on a particular book, a special one that deeply affected your life or how you think or what you think about. Your essay, which is called My Life in Wonderland, is a really wonderful reflection on how the work of Lewis Carroll has had a meaningful part of your life. When you were asked by the journal, approached by the journal to contribute to the issue, were the Alice books your immediate choice or did you have a hard time picking a particular title? Immediate choice, absolutely immediate. <laughs> um, I think about Alice a lot. I, she gets into a lot of my writings in one way or another. Mm -hmm. um, 
it's a book I love. Um, in the essay, I talk about how I was raised on the book by my mother and how people who know me always give me Alice presents, Alice, Alice packs of cards and Alice cups. And I have a wonderful mirror where one side is Alice heading into the mirror and the other side is Alice coming out of the mirror on the other. So, so it was, um, it was, I play Alice sometimes. I have an audio book of it and every once in a while I just play it instead of a Brahms quintet or a Louis Armstrong or something, I just play a little bit of Alice. It's uh, something I sort of know by heart. I can't recite the books by heart, but if you give me the beginning of a sentence, I can probably <laughs> end it, finish it for you. So it was, it was an obvious choice. And also I knew that all of my learned colleagues would say that their favorite book was Proust or Plato or some highfalutin intellectual thing. And it was a way of thumbing my nose a little bit at academia and saying, you wanna know what book I care about? This is the book I care about. And so it was fun doing it that way too. Um, so it was, there were, it was overdetermined why I chose that. But <laughs> lots of fun writing the essay. To, yeah. Well, thank you. And thank you for it. It was absolutely a joy to read. Your essay starts with a reflection on how you sort of see your, or saw your own mother in the characters of the Queen of Hearts and the Red Queen. And as I read that, I was thinking about it and I was thinking about how a lot of the characters in Alice or that she encounters are metaphors for the types of adults that one would encounter as a child in your life, um, which also I think is a, for me anyway, was a reminder of the little prince and, and the way that that was done really well in terms of like a young person encountering all these different types of grownups. My question is, do you think that Lewis Carroll was making a specific commentary with the queens about the British monarchy, which some people think that's what that means, or was it more just grownups and adults writ large in terms of, of how he painted those characters? It's a good question. I think um, the monarchy is already there mm -hmm. in uh, children's games. Uh, chess is hardly a child's game, but uh, some children play chess and certainly cards. So in the cards, you already have kings and queens, that comes from the European origin of the cards. Chess is actually an Indian game. The, the term checkmate is actually shahmat, which means the king is dead in Persian. Oh, I didn't um, know that. How wonderful. <laughs> you're speaking a bit of, of corrupted Persian. I love uh, it. And it comes from the Mughal period in India, and it gets into colonial Britain and all that sort of thing. So, so there is a colonial history in the card figures, mm -hmm. but it's also interesting that they are kings and queens and, and, and uh, kings and queens in chess and so forth. So what I think is that it is about grownups mm -hmm. and it's about the way that for a child, grownups have the kind of unreasonable absolute monarchy, the absolute authority and power that monarchs have. So you, your mother says you have to go to bed now. And you say, why? And she says, because I say so. That's the way kings and queens talk. Right. When we're grownups, if someone says, I'd like to go there, you say, why? They say, well, I think this or that. But for the, the treatment of children as subjects, mm -hmm. um, I think it's a wonderful expression of the feeling that children have that they're powerless. Yeah. That these are unreasonable arguments. Why should I go to bed now? It's bright daylight out. It's a completely stupid thing to say, and yet you have to do it. Right. And that's the kind of authority that the Red Queen and the White Queen have. Um, they say things completely nonsensical, and Alice says, that's not right, is it? But that's it. It's the way it is. Right. So I think the kings and queens come into 
the nursery rhymes, the king, the king was in his counting house, counting out his money. Mm -hmm. The queen was in her chamber eating bread and honey. I mean, there's so many kings and queens in the nursery rhymes of ordinary children. They never saw kings and queens. Right. Why are these stories all about kings and queens? And it's fairy tales too about princesses. So the idea of royalty in children's literature is partly romantic and it's partly a child's view of the world of unreasonable absolute authority. Mm. And it's most brilliantly expressed, I think, in Alice in Wonderland, where mm. the kings, or the queens in particular, are so unreasonable. Oh, <laughs> yes. Uh, I think it's just a wonderful picture of how the world looks to a child in the presence mm -hmm. of unreasonable adults like parents. Yeah. Thank you. And as and as a person who grew up reading the book and now as a mother of two young children, it's it's when those when those tables turn, it's like, oh, I get it on a whole nother level now. <laughs> I have power. <laughs> right. And I do ask them to go to bed and it is broad daylight out. And that is totally unreasonable. <laughs> unreasonable. And all the things you're asked to do are unreasonable. Oh, it's yeah. true. Brushing your teeth. It's just why? Why? Oh I, yeah. <laughs> no, don't ask me why. Just do it. Right. Yeah. I could I, I just had that argument about three hours ago. One of the parts about your essay that I love the most was you, you just rattled off a bunch of snippets and quotes from the books that have made, your, made their way into the daily vernacular of you and your family. My question is, what do you think it is about Carol's writing that makes it so prone to sticking in your head, almost like a catchy song? Well, it is catchy. I think catchy is another <laughs> word for it. Um, it's simple. These mm -hmm. are stories about children and for children. Um, there are satires on big fancy words um, Humpty Dumpty makes that the 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 um, the mushroom scene with the caterpillar. There are lots of uh, all of Jabberwocky big words. So mm -hmm. there, there's jokes about big big words, um, portmanteau words that mean two things, and that's why Carol does not use big words. His, he uses very simple words, uh, one two syllable words, which do have a sing song quality, which is easy to remember and easy to chant, one, two, and two, and through, and through, the vorpal blade goes snicker-snack. So that's a phrase, which I always use when I have to do something mindless or difficult, and I think I can do it. One, two, one, two, I can do it. Um, so I think they're, they're, they're simple, catchy phrases. Um, he writes beautifully. The rhyme schemes, the rhythm schemes are always just part of natural speech so that it's easy to memorize. Mm -hmm. um, I think they just stick in your mind because they're, they're the best kind of simple poetry. Mm -hmm. um, and the rhythm, the music of the lines, will you, won't you, will you, won't you, will you join the dance? It's impossible to forget it once you hear it. And so it comes up again. Time has come, the warlord said, to talk of many things, uh, ships and sails and sealing wise and wax and whether pigs have wings. I mean, <laughs> it's just, it just trips off the tongue. Right. Uh, it's fun to say. Yeah. Um, you're old, Father William. It's just, the rhythms are simple. They reflect the rhythms of ordinary English speech. The rhymes are simple. Um, it's just very memorizable stuff. <laughs> 
Agreed. Agreed. You also make note of how morbid the books can be. Um, you, I'm going to quote you saying that they are obsessed with death, like so many of the great works of children's literature. Some parents or caregivers today might be a bit shocked by the bluntness of these books and the many threats of beheading <laughs> throughout them um, if they haven't read them before. What would you say to those that think that some of these themes and some of this imagery in these books is not age appropriate? Well, we get into the whole thing of trigger warnings and the whole philosophy that that you mustn't surprise children and you mustn't warn them and so forth. Um, I don't really believe in that. I believe that people of all ages should read Huckleberry Finn and learn about racist language as well as racism from, from the way it is. So that's for older children, perhaps. But I think that children, we know from Freud, Children do have dark thoughts. You don't invent them. You don't say, you know, things die, don't you? Children know that things die. A puppy dies, a goldfish dies. Um, death is something that children worry about. Someone in the family dies. There are very few of us are lucky enough to reach the age of six or seven without encountering something or someone dying. Mm -hmm. And I think that to make a joke of it, is almost as useful as having a serious talk about it, which is also sometimes necessary. Mm -hmm. So I think you don't put the idea into children's head. They worry what happens. If you eat a chicken, was this a live chicken before I ate my chicken dinner and so forth? So I think it's there anyway, just as racism is there in the world and children should learn about it from Mark Twain or anybody else. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so I don't think that's the case. Joking about it, I think, helps. Mm -hmm. I believe in what my Viennese mother used to call galgen humor, um, gallows humor. Mm. Joking about death, joking about serious things. That you don't say, let's not joke about that is too serious. It's because it's serious that you have to have jokes about it. Mm. So when you think of other children's books, there's a lot of death in uh, the Grimm's fairy tales. Even modern stories, Charlotte's Web. Mm -hmm. It's all about worrying that that pig is going to be killed. Mm -hmm. um, and indeed, Babe, which is the wonderful successor to mm -hmm. Charlotte's Web in, in, in this generation of children, is all about whether they're going to eat the duck and whether they're going to eat the pig and everything. So I think that great children's literature has always been about death. And I think that this is an example mm -hmm. of, um, of someone confronting death and worrying about it and a joking about it. Mm -hmm. uh, so that by the end, you get kind of used to the idea that death is everywhere and that when you eat things, it kills them. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's good. I think it's a good way to deal with ideas and fears that children already have about death rather than as the argument sometimes goes that they won't think about it until they read a book. Mm -hmm. I think it's just nonsense. I agree. Of course they think about it. And this is a good way to think about it. I agree. I agree. And it, and it, it creates a sense of transparency, you know, that, that, that lightheartedness and that, and that jokiness, it, it opens up the conversation. Like you just said, it allows the, for that. the bread and butterfly only eats this analysis. Well, if it doesn't get that, will it die? And the answer is yes, it dies. So that, let's go on to the next thing, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> now what else? One answer to that question. <laughs> right. Excellent. 
I'm really grateful for your description of the 1933 Alice in Wonderland film in, in your paper, which I sheepishly admit I have not seen. Um, see I know. Well, I am now. That is my that is assignment number one, having read yeah. your paper. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, um, yeah. You note that while the film is flawed, it's the best adaptation of the books that there is. Does that movie adhere more closely to the actual plot and language of the books? I really wanted to know from you what makes that film better than the many other versions there have been, which you which you call appallingly bad. And I do agree with you. I haven't seen a good, a good version of Alice anywhere. They're all terrible. <laughs> yeah. No, what makes this film wonderful is not that it tells the story particularly well. It's the casting. Ah. I mean, W.C. Fields is Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> that is in, in itself, it's just such a stroke of genius. Right. And Edna Mae Oliver as the Red Queen, this wonderful character. Um, Cary Grant as the Mock Turtle. I mean, who could have, why did he even take the part? It's such right. a departure from his usual debonair thing. The Mock right. Turtle is always weeping and moaning. Right. And Gary Cooper as the White Knight is also inspired. The White Knight is very tall and keeps falling off his horse. Yeah, yeah. So there you have Gary Cooper, the very, very tall Gary Cooper. So, it, and the, the whole cast goes on and on and on. So just seeing those people in those parts, is just so hilarious that it doesn't even matter what they say or do. Right, they right. more or less say or do a lot of the things that are in, that are in the books. Right. Uh, it's a combination of, of the two books, but... Um, they're just wonderful. The casting is just simply great. My mission now is to find out on what streaming platform I can find it. And if not, then I will I will go to I'll eBay. I own it. I'll lend you my copy. It's just wonderful. Excellent. Um, well, thank but, you. But all the films, it's impossible to do it. Um, the cartoon versions in some ways are better because they can do the magic better, something turning right. into something else. And, right. and um, but, but the but having these actors in the parts, I think, was what mm -hmm. was particularly wonderful. And Sterling Holloway is the frog footman. I mean, it's just it's just it's inspired casting. And I think all these great actors took on these really silly parts as a lark and as a change of pace. I think there was a certain amount of drinking on the set. <laughs> they were probably having a blast. <laughs> I think they were having a great time. And oh, it's reflected wow. in the movie. That was makes it funny. You can feel the joy. I think so. I think so. Excellent. You touch on many ways that these books have tied into your academic research. How does the Alice universe find connections in Indology? It finds it in Indian mythology. I'm, I'm, I'm a particular kind of a student of India. I'm not a historian. I'm not really a literary expert either. I really write about the mythology of Hinduism. Mm. I really don't know that much about Buddhism and, and uh, not much at all about Islam. So my specialty is ancient Hinduism, ancient India, um, which was Hindu for, for many centuries. Uh, the Rig Veda, the Upanishads, the two great Sanskrit epics, uh, Ramayana and the Mahabharata. And the theology of India as well which has a great deal to do with dreams and illusions and transformations. Mm. So things become other things a great deal in Indian mythology. Dreams are real. People get into other people's dreams. Dreams become real. The whole dream mythology of Alice in Wonderland, the fact that the two um, adventures are dream adventures. They don't really happen. Alice dreams them and wakes up. Alice dreams them and wakes up. And there's a lot about dreaming, particularly in Through the Looking Glass, where the Red Queen is dreaming of Alice while Alice is dreaming of the Red Queen. 
So the idea of dreams nested in other dreams and of us having no existence except in the mind of a dreamer mm. is um, part of Asian Indian theology, really, that, that we are part of the mind of God. And mm. that is what our existence is. And that we wake up from a series of dreams and a series of rebirths. It's just a great deal. There's a great deal of, of dream theology and dream mythology in mm. India, which I found very compatible with, mm. um, inspired in some ways by, um, I've written a lot about dreams in Indian mythology. And in several of my books, I've used Alice in Wonderland and the dream of the White King. This mm. is not a surprise since. Lewis Carroll um, was a uh, don um, at Christ Church College in Oxford mm. in the 19th century and knew a great deal about India mm. and knew a lot about Indian theology too. And the whole paradox of dreaming, there's just a lot of Indian thinking in the two books. India was part of uh, Britain's colonies then with the dealing with the colonial age. So I think that it's a two-way stretch. It's not just the case that I'm influenced by Lewis Carroll in right. my study of India, but that he was influenced by Indian philosophy. He must know, have known quite a lot of Indian philosophy, living as he did and being um, a, a British intellectual at that time. So I think I recognized in Alice in Wonderland a lot of Indian theology and mythology. And in my own writings, I started writing about dreams, illusion, and other realities in the 1980s. And just this year, I published an essay on being the Indian idea of being part of the dream of God and actually cited Lewis Carroll in it. So I think it's the same world that I lived in in the Sanskrit texts mm -hmm. is the world that Lewis Carroll lived in at Oxford in the 19th century with an awareness of Indian philosophy. Um, so that's, it's, it, there's a, a serious, actually, historical overlap. Mm -hmm. And uh, the way that he developed the ideas was very useful to me in coming to my own understanding of the Indian version of those same ideas of being a part of somebody else's dream of waking up to reality, mm -hmm. of reality as being an awakening. Mm -hmm. um, the whole Bodhi means awakening, the whole idea of waking up from, from the dream the illusion of reality is a dream of reality. And if you're really enlightened, you wake up. Mm. So, so I found that compatible. I love it. And I, I just, I love listening to you speak on that because it's just such a testament, you know, and I tend to get really romantic about academia and about literature, but it's just such a testament that just like centuries and countries can just have this straight line across. It's not you trying to make that connection. That connection is there. The connection is there. Yeah. Then, I love that. then your job is to differentiate it, to say, but the Indian, but. you have to learn Sanskrit. If, if, you, if everything was in Lewis Carroll, why bother to learn Sanskrit? <laughs> right. No, it's not exactly the same in India. Once, no. you, then once you've established the link, then you say, but they do something else with it. And he right. does. Something he changed else. it this way. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's fun too. I've always felt an immediate and strong kinship with people who love the Alice books as much as I do, yeah. um, which is one of the reasons why I was so delighted to come up on your essay. And I, I feel like I might be making a sweeping generalization here, but I feel like there's a certain kind of person, uh, someone who just is a lover of wordplay, someone who sort of delights in the weird and the odd that these books really draw in that's drawn to these stories. Do you, mm -hmm. would you agree? Do you think there's just kind of a certain sort of nerdy weirdo that really likes the Alice books? I think so. I would add people who like whimsy, people, yeah. people who are whimsical, mm -hmm. uh, lighthearted, 
who don't yeah. take themselves seriously, yeah. um, who, who are not ashamed of being silly, mm-hmm. um, or not ashamed of loving children's books. People who take themselves seriously would never say, Alice is my favorite book. I mean, I want to write about Proust here. Let's get serious. <laughs> Um, So I think that people who laugh at themselves will have a certain kind of sense of humor. I lived um, for 10 years in Oxford, uh, the happiest years of my life. I love Oxonian thinking, Donish thinking. um, And um, I I see it in Lewis Carroll. And I see it in the people that I really loved in England who, who had a kind of silliness in their sense of humor. They were often great scholars and very serious people, but they didn't take themselves too seriously. Mm-hmm. And I think that people who love the Alice books are people who are like that, mm-hmm. who are always ready to laugh and to, um, to be capable of self-mockery. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 the Alice books are also about human flaws, about... With silly things. Alice is making such a series of terrible mistakes. It's such a mess, right? <laughs> She's constantly saying the wrong thing to the wrong people. Um, it's wonderful. Her gaffes are simply so wonderful. Oops, she says, I'm sorry I said that. <laughs> so I think that people who, who are able to laugh at, at themselves mm-hmm. are also able to laugh at Alice, at, at the silliness of English philosophy, of English literature, um, I think that you, you find soulmates when you find um, this, the Lewis Carroll Society, which I, I haven't seen it in years, but I used to hang out with people from the Lewis Carroll Society. And they're, they're great people. They're truly eccentric people. So yeah. that's, that's the Alice crowd, really. Right. But then, then also you have it in Mrs. Miniver. I mean, in a way, everybody loves Alice. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go far to find a fellow uh, Lewis Carrollian. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, Mrs. Miniver has that wonderful scene where Greer Garson is reading to the children while the bombs are falling and she's reading Alice in Wonderland. Mm-hmm. That's the book they chose in this great propaganda film of World War II to make sure they tugged at the heartstrings of everybody who saw the film. Right. And it goes well. That's uh, uh, it, easily, it, it, immediately identifiable. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, my last question is, I just wanted to know if you're working on a book or if there's anything coming up for you research-wise that you wanted to share with us. Yes, I'm always working on a book. <laughs> I figured as much. That's <laughs> my middle name. I've written 50 books, so I always around. Yeah. <clears throat> so I'm actually, this year I'm publishing two books. One just came out and Alice is in it. <laughs> um, it's a book that consists of the letters that I wrote to my parents in 1963 when I was 22 and on my first visit to India. And I wrote lots and lots of letters. I typed them out. My mother saved them. They were lost for years. I only found them a couple of years ago. Oh, wow. So I'm just publishing them now. It's published in India now. It'll come out in America a little bit later. Um, And um, there I am trying to make sense of India. And I keep quoting things. I say, it's like this. This one was like that, where I had these strange things and I'm homesick and I'm confused in many ways. I say, it reminded me of this. And Alice, I quote around 12 times in the in these letters. Oh, it wow. was like the White Queen. It was like this and so forth. Or I, or I just used the phrase. So so Alice is in that book of my, of my old letters when I was very young, 22, and very foolish in many ways. So, so that's certainly something which is relevant to this. And then the book that's coming out next month in, in America is a translated, very different kind of a book. It's a translation of the last books of the great Sanskrit epic, the Mahabharata. Mm-hmm. It's called After the War, 
the last books of the Mahabharata. And it's, it is after the war, the war is over. And then there's these hundreds and hundreds and pages of Sanskrit where they're trying to figure out what to do with their lives after the war. They've killed their, it's a, it's a, it's a battle between cousins. It's a civil war. They have to live with people who killed their children, people whose children they killed. Mm. It's about peace and reconciliation. It's about forgiveness. It's about making friends with your enemies. I think it's very relevant to the world we live in today. I was just going to say that those are messages we could hear right now. There are definitely messages in it. It's never been really properly translated. Parts of it have not been translated at all. So I was pleased to put it together. I've been working on that for years and years. And so that's coming out now. So those are those are the those are this year's books. <laughs> right. Wonderful. Um, well, I'm very much looking forward to both. And we will we will post links to the ones that are currently available um, in the show description so that our listeners the, the book of letters is only available as a book in India, but it's available here as a Kindle. So, okay. so you can you can get both of them really. Or you will be about to be able to get the other one. So Wonderful. Well, Dr. Wendy Doniger, thank you so much. This was a delight. I'm going to watch the movie. I'm going to reread the book because you've just re reawakened my, my already very long and very deep love of Alice. And I just so appreciate your time. Your essay is terrific and just filled me with joy. Well, I, I'm so pleased you liked it so well. It, it brings joy to my heart to be, see a happy reader. Um, and thank you very much for letting me talk to you about it today. Very a great pleasure. Thank you. This podcast is a production of Hopkins Press. For more information, please visit press.jhu.edu.